Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, where we talk about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty of the University of Essex, and it's a great pleasure to welcome to the show today Amanda Cole and Ella Jeffries of the University of Essex, both from the Department of Language and Linguistics. Our topic today is sociolinguistics, language variation and change, languages within languages, um, and attitudes to change. So Amanda and Ella, uh, warm welcome to the show. Um, thanks very much for coming on. Let's begin with your own work and interests and tell us a bit about sociolinguistics, how language changes and how it's tied to identity and pride. So we'll come into those aspects later on. Um, Amanda, would you like to have a have a start? Um, yes. Yeah, so both me and Ella are sociolinguists. Um, so sociolinguistics broadly is interested um, in language in society. So how people feel about language in society, how people talk, the differences between people um, in the way that they speak. Even sometimes people from the same community can have different ways of speaking and the way that language can change over time and how kind of lots of different social, cultural, political um, forces can kind of impact upon those processes. Um, do you add to that, Ella, so in terms of your own research? Yeah, so within the kind of context of sociolinguistics, I guess both of us focus more on the sort of regional accent part of that. So how does um, the way that we speak reflect perhaps part of our regional background, where we come from? regionally speaking, our regional accent. Um, my own work in particular is interested in children's development of um, regional accents. So how do children kind of develop that that sense of having a regional accent, but also how do they develop a perception of regional accent? So how do they come to discover that people from different places speak differently and have different ways of talking? And then linking to that, which I think we'll go into a bit later on, um, how do the kind of attitudes that people might hold towards different accent varieties, again, develop in childhood? So we're, we're talking about a very dynamic context, even though I suspect that a lot of people think that language and dialect is, is, is something that's rather stable. But I think both of you in your work have shown how it differs over, over place, but also across the life course, as you've said, um, from children um, onwards. Uh, could you say a little bit about how dialects and accents emerge and change? What, what, what do we know and what sorts of things have you been working on? Amanda, do you want to have a go with that? Um, so we'll often think of, like, as you said, a dialect or a language as being something very set. So, you know, we could talk about the English language as if it's one single thing um, that hasn't changed throughout time. But of course it has. It's changed continually throughout time. Um, the English we speak now is very different to the English um, spoken by Shakespeare. Um, and obviously, if the further back we go, we can get to a point where we would probably lose mutual intelligibility. Um, and English will continue to change. So what we're really looking at with any language or dialect is just kind of this freeze-framed version of it. But actually, despite this being, you know, obviously the case for all human language, we often find that certain ways of speaking are seen as maybe correct, are seen as proper, are seen as the, you know, the right way of speaking a language or the right way of speaking a dialect. Um, and this is obviously a complete social construct. There's nothing inherent or scientific or logical that makes one way of speaking a language any better than any other. It's just the sort of social underpinnings behind that that tell us that there is. And currently, um, within in the way that English is spoken in Britain, there's very much this idea that there is this correct form of English. So people might call it 
maybe Queen's English or maybe now King's English or BBC English. So these kind of more like personifying terms for it. Um, so my research has looked a bit at what happens when people don't speak in this way and they have sort of different regional accents. How can that kind of hold them back in their life? What are the different ways that they're judged? Um, and I've specifically looked at like Southeast England, as I think often we can think of Southern England as just being the place where people speak, you know, very standard. Maybe people think there's not a huge amount of variation in the South. But actually there is, there's a huge amount of different ways of speaking, lots of different dialects, and all of them are seen favourably. And one of those dialects, unfortunately, also for myself coming from here, is an Essex sort of dialect, or the Essex accent. Um, so my research has kind of looked at the way that people who speak an Essex accent may be judged and perceived um, in society. And again, this is all socially constructed. There's nothing inherent about an Essex accent that makes it any, in any way inferior to any other way of speaking. So under underneath the, the the language and dialect is is a is a set of kind of values that you've described there about kind of right and wrong and how we perceive and and it's obviously not a binary. I mean these are kind of you know co very complex as as you've hinted. How how do how does that emerge? Is that something that 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 happens within um, at, at children's level within families within communities um who's making those kind of moral judgments that that influence um uh, what you can say and what you can't say i imagine this is something that starts early is it ella is that is that what we would conclude yeah well i guess that's kind of what i'm interested in finding out um we don't know all that much about how maybe children develop some of these um kind of biases or attitudes or yeah, attitudes towards sort of standard varieties. I mean, we know that, for example, the school system might kind of embed some of those um, ideologies as well, because particularly when it comes to writing, you know, we're taught to write in a certain way using kind of maybe forms that children might not be familiar with if they, they speak in a certain dialect and then they're kind of suddenly forced to use standard English. It's uncomfortable for them or more difficult for them. Um, so they kind of get, get into that situation of... of of finding it a bit more tricky, but also seeing the value that um, is kind of placed upon this standard variety that everyone's expected to use to some extent. Um, but yeah, so so it's interesting to, to look at, into that into a bit more depth. I think more generally, kind of historically speaking, what's also interesting is what, what is seen as good or correct or standard has changed over time as well. So it's not just, so that kind of shows that it's not anything intrinsic about a standard variety being better or, you know, um, any more correct because what is seen as any more correct, it's what is seen as correct, it has changed kind of over the course of the history of English. And if you look at standard varieties of other language, you know, that's the same kind of thing. It's often about um, power and influence and who the people um, in power <laughs> are, are and how um, and, and, you know, where, where that power is situated. So in the case of, of the UK or in England, it's the southeast, it's London, it's it's that kind of um, power, the government sort of structure that leads to the ideas around what a kind of correct form is. But um, yeah, so it's it's interesting to look at not only how the perception of what is correct has changed over time, but also how that becomes embedded um, as as we develop kind of sociolinguistically as as um, as people who use language. So if there's there's kind of identity and pride that you've talked about there, and that in itself, the values of that are changing, 
Uh, perhaps sometimes we feel that we need to fit in, so we need to speak like those who have power, as you just mentioned. Or sometimes we want to make sure that we don't fit in, that we're deliberately not doing so, so that we would make some other kinds of choices. Um, Amanda, you've you've uh, you've looked closely at, at Cockney and its influence, um, as you were saying about um, Essex and its kind of mini forms of 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 subtle dialect. The 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 London-based part has come um, east and northeast into the one of the counties next to the city. Tell us a little bit about, about how that's happened and what's that what's that also meant for these kind of um, subtle outcomes of, of of language and dialect that we see today. Yeah, so a lot of my research has been looking at the sort of movement of Cockney or sort of East London accents into Essex um, and the way that Essex dialects have broadly been kind of influenced by London accents. Um, and part of this has, has come from what I kind of call me-search rather than research. So like researching um, into my own kind of family background, my own experiences. Um, so I was particularly interested in there was a series of sort of government-led programmes to essentially move people out of East London um, throughout the 20th century, but particularly after World War II. Um, so part of this, you know, lots of new build towns were built, um, new build council estates, um, and many of these, not exclusively, but many of these were in Essex. Um, so I was interested, you know, in this large scale movement that happened after World War II of people from East London to Essex, we could probably predict that maybe that's going to have some influence on the way that people speak in Essex. Um, and the reason I say it's me search is both sets of my grandparents were moved in these programs, which we would call the slum clearance programs, but essentially were moved from East London um, to council states in Essex. And then I grew up in one of these council states. Um, and essentially what I found is that in these quite specific places, the way that people speak is essentially Cockney transplanted. So when we look at like the first generation of people to grow up, so now we're talking like my dad, who was born in the late 50s in Essex, very much within Essex, but into a community that was formed almost exclusively of East Londoners and into an East London family. And, you know, he would describe it as this very like East London enclave that everybody spoke in the same way. People even knew their neighbours because they remembered them from East London. Um, and actually the way that, say, my dad and his generation spoke is cockney. Like I couldn't find differences between him and previous accounts of the way people spoke in East London. So we can say Cockney kind of did move, but it has changed in Essex, as all accents will. So it's, you know, it's taken on new flavours. Younger people in Essex have um, kind of made the accent their own, and there are new sort of features that maybe we would find that, say, older generations might not use. So, for instance, um, the plural use, so I could say, use to, what are you up to today? It's something that now a lot of young people in Essex might do, but you know my grandparents wouldn't do it. And that doesn't mean Cockney didn't move to Essex, it just means it's changed. Um, but then a more interesting question I had was, okay, so we know that these specific communities, so these estates, these new build towns, we know that Cockney moved there, but what about the rest of Essex? And actually, you can still see that London accents have influenced across the whole of Essex. But we're seeing that more in southern parts and more in urban parts. But I think the whole county is re has really felt the spread of London accents throughout. Mm, fascinating. I mean, I think that, that what strikes me is that as you describe this uh, and and your own family change is that 
that in talking about language and, and dialect, we all immediately go inside and think about our own futures, about where we started, where we moved, went to school, what sorts of norms there were at home, um, and how that then changed through the life course. I mean, I think it's 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 also true, even though we did mention the, the Queen's English and now the King's English. Actually, the Queen's accent was very different when she was 90 compared to when she was 20, which which is uh, reflects the changes that can happen across the the life course as well. So that's not a that's not a plimsoll line that's unmoving. If we could use that as a kind of metaphor, that was moving anyway um, throughout throughout her life course. Um, how about those changes then? Could we just take that a little bit further, Ella, about about the changes? Um, what sorts of influences are happening for young people, and then how is that? Is is there a typical pattern of of change across the life course, or are we looking at these wider social contexts that 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 shape our uh, language and um, dialect and and specific words, as you've just mentioned, Amanda, across across the life course? Yeah, and that's a really interesting question, and I think. Um like Amanda, my own interest in this comes from my own personal experience as well, due to, so I grew up in the north, so in Yorkshire, um, but with southern parents. So for me, there was always that difference between the way that my community spoke with a Yorkshire accent, northern vowels and things, and the way that my family spoke with southern vowels. And, and that always kind of stood out for me. Um, so I suppose that's kind of where my interest stemmed from. And that's perhaps why I've maybe got a bit more of a, I don't know, levelled or mixed accent between sometimes my Yorkshire vowels come out quite strongly, sometimes not so much. And of course, I live in Essex now, so that has tempered it a bit. But those questions around when our accent forms and how it might change over time um, can be quite uh, dependent. Well, they're dependent on lots of factors. We tend to say that children, first of all, sort of pick up how their parents are speaking at home before they have much interaction with perhaps their local community. But then they tend to go towards a more peer-based model. So basically, kids want to sound like their friends. So they end up picking up the accent more of their community um, or the particular friendship groups that they have. Um, and that's very much embedded in you know that kind of idea of in-group status and wanting to sort of fit in with whoever it is that they want to fit in with. I mean, you can get situations where you've got a family with two siblings, for example, who sound very quite different because of the groups of people that they hang around with, because of the different accents that those groups have um, and how they kind of manifest in, in their sort of identity with those, with those ways of speaking. Um, we also tend to say that we sort of, not solidified by any means, but get to a point where our accent's a bit more fixed, let's say, by around adolescence, so that if you move, say, from one part of the country to another, or even from one country to another, your accent isn't necessarily likely to completely change if you move after the age of, I don't know, say, 10 or so. Um, but it is still possible to change to certain extents. Um, and we talk about things like linguistic accommodation. So that's when you end up speaking more like the person that you're talking to. Um, and that can happen on kind of smaller levels or larger levels, depending on um, depending on the situation. So it might just be that you end up picking up the odd word or two of, you know, a new person that you interact with a lot. Or it might be that you, you know, change your accent to quite a large extent, just because, again, the idea of wanting to kind of fit in or wanting to kind of show that you're part of a new community. And the other side to it is you might have a really strong, for example, Yorkshire identity, no way that you're going to change to sound to Southern. Um, so you kind of adamantly 
decided not to, <laughs> to to change the way that you speak. So lots of different factors at play. Very interesting. And if we, I mean, I can remember when people were talking in the early days of of what was clearly becoming a more globalised world as as interconnectivity rose, as communication technology spread, uh, and many people talking about kind of convergence of of language and kind of emerging from all this complexity a lot of a lot more simplicity or kind of mono ways of of not actually just speaking but thinking but what you're describing is actually that is is it true to say that 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 those social influences on the way that we um choose uh, come to choose our language is is always going to mean forms of divergence because you've got um, you know, the sea is flowing in and flowing out all the time in different places that people's um, choices and responses to what's going on around them is always going to lead to divergence. I suppose I'm getting at the point that just as you've both described Yorkshire and um, Essex Cockney accents, that, it, that even in this, as it were, um, hyper-connected world, we can still pinpoint where people come from in a country really quite accurately um, and to say, well, you're from there or else your family's from there. And it's actually quite different to those people 50 miles or 100 miles away. I mean, that's quite a, an amazing thing, really. Yeah, we still have an awful lot of accent diversity in this country for, you know, such a small country. People do talk about certain amounts of levelling happening. So there are, um, because of, like, as you say, kind of mobility, people moving around more, more interaction um, on a, well, country-wide level but also kind of globally um so people you know there is a sense in which there's a certain amount of leveling of, of accents going on but at the same time as you said there's always going to be new forms new um language developing new variation over time that's just the nature of how language is it's never going to be a stable thing so as much we kind of get both things really maybe a bit of convergence in one sense but then also divergence in other senses um as, as communities kind of develop their their new new and different ways of speaking with each other. So what about, uh, I suppose there's a sociolinguistics 101 question here, which is probably really basic, but how does that diversity vary within other countries? Um, are, there, are there differences or is it just simply correct to say um, uh, these are things that change across people's life course according to different places and power and gender and identity. And that's that's just a, a continuing flux that we see across all human societies or or not. What, what, what do we know about that, Amanda? So I think there are some very common kind of mechanisms for like language change that will happen across kind of all human language and all different societies. But obviously they can take these very specific kind of roots in different places depending on the sort of individual context so when i say there are common mechanisms you know language can change because people who speak differently to each other come into contact so maybe two communities with different accents come into contact and over time that can lead to change in you know one accent could come more similar to the other they could both become more similar or even perhaps they could diverge but this is one of the sort of mechanisms that leads to language change but obviously within sort of different communities, the way that that happens, the speed that that happens, the accent that comes dominant, all of that is dependent very much on the very specific socio-political, cultural context within that community. So say within Britain, when we see patterns of dialect levelling, um, so people beginning to speak more similarly to each other, um, this isn't always 
just random as in the target that people are kind of shifting towards happens because people want to sound that way so if we look across kind of the southeast where people are starting to all sound slightly more similar to each other than in previous generations what's kind of winning out what's becoming more dominant is kind of a very standard southern british english um which in a way doesn't mark out where people are from so clearly within the southeast and the reason that that's becoming dominant is not just because we encounter it a lot more but because it is seen as prestigious it's seen as correct so it feels like a natural route for people to kind of um begin to adopt or to sort of shift towards so i think the mechanisms are the same but we do see these differences in how that kind of enacts within a given society and presumably this might i mean this could well be uh, a result of greater interaction between different communities that, that in in the not so distant past might have been separated for all sorts of reasons migrant communities coming in um, much more integration uh, today than than i feel there was when for example, I was younger in London. It feels to me like there's a lot more integration. So you would expect as a result of that more levelling and convergence as you've described. Is that is that correct? Yeah, and definitely we're encountering new ways of speaking a lot more and in a lot more ways. So I think what's been solid throughout, you know, all of human history and human language is these kind of mechanisms of how language change. We encounter different ways of speaking and that can lead to language change. But of course, the way we now encounter language um there are a lot more sort of diverse ways we can read, you know, social media, the media, just listening to the radio, people listening to this podcast um, may hear accents that are different to their own, which if we go back not even very far through sort of human history, people's the sort of accents that people encountered would have been a lot more localised. Um, and they certainly wouldn't have been, you know, spending one single day hearing this huge range and diversity and different accents as we can now and we take for granted. Um, so this is something that linguists are now really looking at and trying to understand of, you know, in our increasing sort of digitalized um, and globalized world, how is this leading to patterns of language change and which ways of speaking are kind of winning out? And of course, we, we're now, you know, no longer just looking at what happens within countries, so say like Britain, but also places that speak English around the whole of the world and including places where people learn English at school and speak it as a second language, what are the forms of English that people are learning and that people are adopting? So there's still a lot of questions for sociolinguists to answer. And I think the new, um, well, the relatively new ways of kind of living and encountering language are creating a whole host of new, interesting questions for us to kind of be addressing. Could we come to gender a little bit and talk about differences between women and men? I mean, are, are there... Are there differences in and relating again, I suspect, to roles in society, but also uh, power relations um, and presumptions about that? Would there be a difference, for example, um, as um, more women work and uh, fewer stay just, as it were, just at home, um, that, that the influences on them and their language and their choices would change really quite quickly? as you see those sorts of, and that's just work workplace change. I mean, there's all sorts of other ones, like being able to travel to lots of other countries and uh, seeing migrant uh, communities come into, into your own country and picking up influences from them. Um, uh, what, what, what's the gender angle on this as well? Ella? Yeah, 
Um, yeah, so there's um, lots of really interesting research into language and gender and, of course, a developing field as we kind of come to re-sort of... Um, resituate what we even mean by gender and kind of gender identity and how all of that kind of plays in so i think the field is like an ever-changing one really in terms of how oh sorry microphones going funny um how uh, how how we look into this question of language and gender um so the, the sort of like historical well the, the sort of early work if you like in this field was very much a you know men speak like this and women speak like that there are these differences and we can kind of categorize them in this way um but more recently there's been um the focus has been more on well what do what does this tell us about like you said things like power relations and um other factors that are that are sort of in, in intersecting with gender, not just you know men speak like this and women speak like that, but what what other factors are playing a role? We do tend to find certain patterns that still kind of play out, although as I said, it's an ever changing thing and you know things things to keep an eye on. But um, so in the field of social linguistics, we tend to find that if we have a sort of linguistic change that's happening, like whether that's sound change or something like this, it tends to be women who sort of lead that change, if you like. So it's women who take on that change and who spread that change and men sort of catch up a bit later. Um, and we also tend to find that women tend to use more standard forms um, of language than men. And these patterns do tend to play out. And this is mainly in a um, in a sort of English speaking and in British context, although in other English speaking parts of the world, similar patterns are found. Um, and so again, you can look into the questions of why that is and kind of stakes that perhaps women have um, in using that standard language to kind of um, as, as, as a sort of positioning themselves if you like in, in, in society that men perhaps don't feel the need to do so much of um, but again it's constantly changing this field and it's interesting to look at um, um, yeah and how things are, how things are changing over time so for I just read a book actually about about swearing which is quite interesting because there's this kind of concept around um you know men swear and use much more swear language than women um but that's a bit of a myth really and there, a lot of these things are a bit mythical if you actually look at the look at the data and see what see what people are doing so for example um these sort of myths around women gossiping more than men and this kind of thing as soon as you look at you know, if you record conversations and look at what men and women are doing, they might be talking about different topics, for example, or gossiping in a different kind of way, but men do it just as much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, could, could we come to then uh, something about kind of attitudes and, and prejudice as well? Because, um, again, uh, I, I, it's fascinating how we start by thinking about the language, the words we're using, the 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 how how we're expressing ourselves and communicating and then how how just how dynamic that is um and it and how that presumably is also reflecting the dynamism in in the whole kind of social sphere as well because of the interaction between the two of them language is a is a window into those other changes presumably and so therefore we're going to get questions of of prejudice and attitudes and values coming back to the point that we made earlier on um uh, coming through as well amanda yeah exactly so the way that the way a person speaks is judged is often kind of this window into the way that that kind of social group is judged 
Um, so we see this sort of mirroring in how accents are evaluated and how groups of people, like their positioning within society. Um, and often people will kind of, it will sort of masquerade as being just about the way that a person speaks. So, you know, a person could say, you should say your teas because if you say water rather than water, that's lazy and it's an incorrect way of speaking. But as we've seen, there's no kind of logical bolstering of that idea. These are just differences in the way that people speak that have come about through these really complex linguistic patterns and processes of language change over hundreds or thousands of years. Um, so it can kind of masquerade as being something inherently about the language, but really when we can kind of unpick it, we see that the ways that are seen as wrong and are incorrect are the ways that are spoken by people, groups of people who tend to have lower sort of prestige and status and power within society. So it tends to be high status groups within any given society. And the way that they speak is seen as correct or is seen as standard or is seen as proper. And there's no sort of coincidence in that. Um, and a good example would be, say, G-dropping. So, I mean, that's a kind of colloquial term that people would use. It's not necessarily linguistically true, but this idea of saying like, running, jumping, playing, rather than ing, so rather than running, jumping, playing. So a lot of people would think that the former is wrong. Um, and you can hear celebrities being criticised for it, you know, politicians being criticised for it. But actually, now, this in ending is used more by working class people and is seen as wrong. But we don't have to go very far back. So sort of, if we go to the early 20th century, it was kind of the other way around. It was actually more upper class people who tended to use this in ending. So, you know, hunting, shooting, fishing, not necessarily said exactly as I just said it, but with this in ending. Um, and, you know, working class people start doing it and it starts to be seen as wrong or incorrect. So, um, again, what we're seeing is that language itself isn't, there's nothing inherent to it that tells us what's right or wrong, but it's the people behind it, the people that speak with these accents who are seen or evaluated in a certain way in society. So I think that's why analysing language attitudes or bias towards accents can actually reveal this whole host of different inequalities or prejudices within society. So it's a really good window for us to kind of understand that. Fascinating. So we might say economics or economics, or we might say ask or acts, which is a, another example, isn't it? Uh, but it does, it, again, it's fascinating how one goes back to the, the, the words that, that you use in your own uh, speech, um, but also very quickly the values associated with them. And as you said, there's a kind of key word there that is used in language about proper, you know, speaking speaking proper, as it were. Um, it's not often used elsewhere, but that comes up when we when we hear about language. But there isn't such a thing. Uh, you, you've just said it's just a dynamic, changing landscape, but with a set of values associated with the way that we speak that in themselves are changing and sometimes flip-flopping um, really dramatically across relatively short periods of time. Yeah, exactly that. It's just this set of values that underpin it. And actually, when you ask someone, OK, but why is that way of speaking wrong or why is it incorrect or why is it lazy? Often people can't really articulate it more than it's just not right. You just don't speak like that. That's just not the right way of speaking. That's not correct English. Um, but actually, people would often struggle to kind of like linguistically explain why that is. And that's because there's nothing scientific about it. It really is just underpinned by these values that exist within society. Fascinating. Well, could we come to a, a couple of thoughts about uh, about the um what what you might have in terms of kind of recommendations they might be educational or policy or about gender equality or or 
other areas that in in reflecting upon your research and the, these kind of fascinating changes of language within language and the rapidity of change and the stability in other aspects um, as as you've both been talking about what sorts of things come to mind from the kinds of research that you've been doing on on sociolinguistics and and the attitudes to change are there a, are there a couple of things that that each of you might want to point towards um, that that leave us kind of saying well this this is something that as it were ought to happen or we ought to be thinking about that would result in some kind of favorable outcome it's kind of difficult with this when you've been describing something that is just so variable um, I suspect it could also be just as people's knowledge of sociolinguistics increases, then then they might be less likely to exert prejudice. But then maybe that's just a hypothesis that's not true. I don't know. What do you think? Sorry, yeah, I was, um, yeah, we'll come into that question relating that to, to, to children, which is obviously what sort of my focus is. Um, yeah, I think sort of education is key. Um, is key here really. So, children being introduced. I mean, there is a lot more kind of things like accent diversity um, um, on children's TV programs, for example, now probably than there was. However, often those sort of character roles play into certain stereotypes. So you get the kind of stupid sounding Cockney you know whatever and the intelligent sounding standard speaking character, and so they play upon these kind of ideas of of characterization which children really do pick up on um and kind of you know take that into the, the real world if you like so so being able to counteract that or you know just in the education system being able to kind of deconstruct those things or even within the media itself being able to sort of say well can we not do that stereotyping or you know do we have to rely upon these these characterizations in this certain type of way um because we know that I mean, we do know to a certain extent kind of what you were just saying that the sort of more exposure to more variation that you have um, is potentially going to play a role in how accepting you might be of other people or how kind of likely you are to judge people on the way that they speak. And, you know, it is about knowledge and awareness. And I think a lot of people don't really realise that when they're judging someone based on the way that they speak, that they're judging that, that that's a, a sort of wrong thing to do if you like they sort of see it as an okay thing to do although we're you know we're kind of there's lots of awareness now around kind of racist sexist language and this kind of stuff um people still find it okay to sort of criticize someone based on the way that they speak and that's essentially criticizing them based on their identity and, and other aspects of their background so it's about that awareness and um, i think education is quite key fascinating um amanda your thoughts yeah so really um echoing what ella was saying um the accent prejudice is i think is seen as quite permissible um often people think that it's okay to pick someone up on their accent or that you know people really should be speaking what they perceive as correct or proper and that it's okay for them to kind of push that idea um which actually is sort of just sort of sweeping under the carpet lots of other forms of prejudices and bias and and unequal outcomes because the way that we speak as we've spoken about today you know reflects who we are it reflects where we're from and it reflects lots of facts about us so women speak differently to men it reflects our class it reflects the places that we've lived um our family 
And these are things that I don't think we would want anyone to have to leave behind at the door and to have to just sort of assimilate into broader, more societally acceptable norms. We want people to be able to celebrate who they are and we want to be able to accept and celebrate diversity within society. And that also counts for accents. Um, so I think there are several ways that this can kind of be combated. I guess you were talking about sort of policy and accent isn't a protected characteristic. So, you know, you could go to an interview for a job and they could say, you know, you were fantastic. You have everything we're looking for, but we just can't have someone talking to clients that sounds the way that you do. Um, and we think as linguists that accent should be protected. It is something that you you shouldn't be discriminated against because of especially because the way that we speak does actually reflect so much, so many more inherent things about us that you shouldn't be discriminated against because of. Um, but beyond kind of more legis you know, legislating and policy, I think a broader change will just come about when we see a more societal acceptance of accents and, you know, sociolinguistic ideas and theory may be having more prominence within societies that people are aware of accents, they're aware of diversity within speaking, and they know that accent bias actually is a really damaging, harmful thing within society that actually holds down certain groups of people and actually elevates others. And often the people it elevates are those who are already in positions of power and status and don't really need that leg up. So I think once we can kind of spread those ideas more broadly throughout society, then I think we can really kind of start to dismantle these unfair, um, these unfair sort of prejudices that are kind of bolstered through accent. Beautifully put. Lovely. Thanks very much indeed. Well, Amanda Cole, Ella Jeffries, thank you so much indeed for coming on the show today. Um, been a real pleasure to hear about about this dynamic field that affects us all and the field of uh, sociolinguistics. Um, and as you've described. Uh, the, the research, the ideas that underpin that um, can lead to improvements for people's lives. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.